The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Wings Over Australia segment, James Kitely. And we're here at Haas, the Historic Aircraft Restoration Society at uh, Illawarra. And uh, we're actually standing next to a huge wing, huge wooden wing here, which is uh, off the Fokker Trimotor uh, Southern Cross replica. Um, and we're with Jim Thurston. Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. 
Now, James, just give us a little bit of a background on this uh, this aircraft and the type. Okay, I'm, I'm not an expert on the uh, the Fokker family, but I'm going to give it do my best. Uh, the Fokker F7 series, which generally known as the Fokker tri, tri-motor, nearly said triplane there, um, that actual aircraft was a great success by for Anthony Fokker in Holland and, a, and a, one of the great airliners of the 1920s. Um, developed in, uh, in great numbers, used all over the world, and uh, actually uh, production built by Avro in the, uh, in the UK uh, under licence. Um, with British engines the, uh, the, and so on. Um, they were used all over the world until there was a terrible accident in America which uh, killed all of the passengers but also uh, very notably a very highly regarded um, American uh, football coach um, and as a result of that particular accident which one of the major contributory factors was um, uh, moisture entering into the wing and destroying the integrity of the wing um, wooden aircraft w- in America were banned for this kind of role which is one of the drivers for um, the metal aircraft that came afterwards which led as we know to the DC-3 and so on. So there's a little bit of a potted history. It's a very important type. Um, there's a couple of survivors around the world, including what this is replicating, uh, Smithy's old bus, uh, um, the uh, aircraft that uh, Charles Kingsford Smith flew, I think, more intercontinental records than anyone else. Uh, it's, uh, it's his, he was one of the great pioneer record breakers by any measure, but uh, the, the, he flew that aircraft all over the place. And there's a fantastic maps of him girdling the globe with that one aircraft. Very affectionate about it. Some amazing stories about that and um, the, the replica was uh, was decided on I think in the 1980s Jim is that correct? It was. it was yeah and it first flew in 1987 right about five years in the making it was it's built in Parafield South Australia okay and um, how did the replica, replica actually come about? A bloke called John Pope who owned a flying school down there who also a flying instructor he just had this vision that he would like to uh, to, uh, to to build a new Fokker uh, and uh, so he raised the interest and, and quite a lot of money for it, uh, including government money. Yep. And after a five-year laborious program, he eventually got it flying in 1987. And it flew successfully for quite some years. I remember in 1990 it crossed the Tasman and um, recreated the um, three crossings that the original Southern Cross did. And uh, it did a bit of a tour of New Zealand, just like um, the, 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 the two Cross, uh, the, the, the two tours that Smithy did because on the first crossing of course it was fairly damaged, the original was fairly damaged and um, was re- being repaired and he went round in other aeroplanes but in 1933 and 1934 he, he went round New Zealand and this aircraft went round New Zealand to various air shows and um, various uh, public events and it was fantastic to see this replica um, my nana had told me about seeing the real one come to Cambridge where I'm wow. from and, yeah. and you know um, uh, it was only a year after my nana died that this one came, and, and uh, I, had, I actually wished that she had been there to see it again. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Just, just to jump in, a thing we, I should have perhaps said a moment ago is the construction of this aircraft is very important because it's uh, uh, sort of interim design as we look at it now, very standard for the period. So we have a, a fully wooden wing. Those in New Zealand are very familiar with the Mosquito Wing, and, and that's a terrific, terrific piece of technology. This is a much lighter construction, much slower aircraft than the Mosquito, and not expected to be subject to the same loads. But nevertheless, it's wood throughout. There's a couple of little metal panels we're looking at to cover accessories and so on. But the actual structure is two wooden box bars and um, stringers, ribs, and um, and uh, then a, a light ply uh, covering throughout. Um, the fuselage. 
though, is a steel tube, I believe, Jim. Yes, yeah. 4130 steel tube. And then covered with fabric. So if you look in the back of it, 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 it just looks like a covered windmill structure, doesn't it, really? <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, and, and an open cockpit, too. So to us, to our modern eyes, a very primitive aeroplane in some ways, but the wings are very, provided it's built correctly, a very effective uh, structure. And we were just mentioning just now, it actually has a slight reflex curve on the underside, which is the side we're looking at as we're talking to you. We can see the ribs and they've all been um, put together and they're actually now into the uh, putting the skinning on and that's a bit of the how you do that because you don't glue it together like you do at home how do you how do you put this together Jim? <laughs> it's, it's pretty let me go back to the timbers for a start there's three timbers that's used in this this wing there's ash which is a very strong hardwood and that's used in the center section of the wing and as you spread out further it goes to spruce Sitka spruce which yep. is a typical timber used for a wooden aircraft even even now uh, that out we sourced ours from Alaska through a, an importer in Australia who imports it for people who want to build yacht masts right. and also musical instruments. The decks on oh, the guitars okay. are very often spruce. Right. It has, it has good acoustics yeah. and yeah. It's, it's some good grain patterns. You're although. not going to be looking at the acoustics for this though, are you? Uh, no, that's, it's a noisy <laughs> aeroplane. And the other timber that's used uh, throughout is skinnet and so forth and wing ribs and so forth is plywood. And we chose to use birch, which is once again typical birch plywood. It comes from fin, the fin, Finland. The Finns okay. are very good at... Uh, at making birch plywood, uh, so we're using the top shop, top of the top of the top grade birch plywood, and uh, and Sitka spruce. And so to, to glue it together, we're using two adhesives. We're using resource null, which is a relatively old glue. It's a petrochemical glue, two-part stuff. It's um, it's it has some demanding uh, requirements in as much that the um, the joint must be a very high-quality joint. It must be blade cut and, and glued within within 24 hours. We did it within an hour right. just to keep the pores of the wood open so that the, the resource knoll can get in there. Okay. And it has a, and it has a high clamping pressure requirement. So our main spars that we built from laminated spruce that was all used resource knoll, and then the skinning where you can't get high clamping pressures and can't get a perfect joint, then you can go to epoxy. So there's advantages in both and yep. some disadvantages in both. So we've tried to compromise when, with both. Okay. And you mentioned that uh, there's no nails and, and no screws in the wing. It's no, no, it's, it's, it's all stuck together. We have used some uh, staples to hold it temporarily while the glue is set, and that's, that's the limit. Cool. Just to jump in on that, uh, people see screws and, and brads as they're, they're properly called for this kind of work in other aircraft, like the Mosquito in fact, mm. but they're not there to hold it together, they're to hold it together during the gluing process uh, and, and the curing, not, not actually part of the permanent structure, um, which people often make that mistake and, and assume otherwise, and I have been corrected by many builders over the years about that. Yeah. Well, I stand corrected then. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a good point. You know, we're looking at the thing. In a way, you can imagine this is like a modern hollow door structure, isn't it? You're basically skinning a hollow structure, making it very light, but also very strong. It has to. You have to make sure it won't twist under loads. We were just talking. There's a nice bit of washout in the wingtip here, as you need on good, well-controlled wings. Um, but uh, it's it's going to be pretty light when it's finished, I think, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, the whole wing. It's a 21-meter wing. Uh, very deep wing up in the center section there and it weighs it'll weigh about 1.4 tons right and when it's finished and when it's covered so the next stage now is as you can see is uh, to finish off the skinning we nearly finished the leading edge skinning uh, that involved molding the plywood to get the contours but then then the uh, birch under and over skins will go on <coughs> and uh, then we're going to put it in a structural test we put it in a jig 
and load at the moment we're going to put three tonnes of bricks distributed on each wing, this wing and the other one the other side and look for um, any uh, deflections, improper deflections and so forth, any cracking, any bad noises and so forth with boroscopes and so forth. And if, that's, <laughs> if that's satisfactory then we'll go on to cover it with plywood, uh, with uh, fabric rather, seconite plywood, uh, get it right in a minute, seconite fabric yep. to protect the plywood. And then, then you dope it up inside. There's two dopes, there's nitrile dope followed by a butyl dope which will cover the paint as well. I'm just going to step back a moment in case anybody missed that. You're going to put three tonnes of bricks on your lovely, lovely wooden wing here just to make sure that that's a terrible thing to do. So the first noise you'll get will be people going, sucking their breath, I should imagine. That's well, that's fairly standard when you're testing a wing, isn't it? Just to put a big yeah. load on it like that. So. The original, when this wing was originally built, they had 18 tonnes of bricks on it. Now that included a, some bricks that, that represented the engines as well. Right. So that, they went up to about 5.5 G for that one. And they did find some problems and they, were, they, they made some modifications as a result of those tests. And you're not really going to be pulling 5.5G in this aircraft when you're operating? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are the circumstances uh, of why this has been repaired? What actually happened to the aircraft? What happened to the aircraft uh, back in May 2002 on takeoff out of Parafield, uh, the right hand oleo leg, when it extended as the weight came off the, uh, came off the oleo, off the wheel, um, the piston within the oleo struck a circlip that was supposed to retain that piston and that didn't work. The circlip jumped out of its groove, oh, wow. which allowed, allowed the piston to expel itself in the piston and held the wheel and the brake assembly the whole lot and it hung down a whole lot, just swung down underneath the aircraft. It flew around for about an hour while they organised emergency services and so forth. When they came in to land, naturally that's the first thing to hit the ground. It, it sheared off the two bolts that held the legs to the fuselage, which is a design feature. Yeah. And the, but ultimately, when the aircraft slowed down and the wing could no longer support itself aerodynamically, the right hand wing struck the ground and, and broke the wing off about four metres from the tip, just about there, broke the, broke the wing off yeah. and uh, <coughs> did a little ground loop. It damaged uh, two propellers. Uh, and uh, but nobody was hurt. They got away. I'll show you shortly the the video of the prank. Okay. But uh, nobody was hurt. No one walked away from it. It sat in South Australia for some years. The South Australian Arts Council who owned it. Uh, they didn't know quite what to do with it. There was a lot of discussion about it. And ultimately, they put out expressions of interest for people that might be interested in fixing it. Yep. And we put an expression in, and we we got it. So it now belongs to Haas. Excellent. Well, I'm really glad that it's been repaired and restored because it's such a uh, even though this is a replica, it's, re it's representing something so important to both Australia and New Zealand. And I was going to say earlier about when Smithy and his team came to New Zealand um, three times, that, that actually ignited the, the flying scene, the civil aviation kind of scene. Aero clubs all sprang up because of this this aircraft, you know, it, yeah. and, and Smithy going around and, and stirring people up and saying, you've got to get yeah. into aviation. And, and it opened up Trans-Tasman um, transport as well um, uh, by air. And yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's an amazing representation of that era. And haven't you guys gone ahead with your historic flight? <laughs> yeah, we have, yeah. <laughs> you, You've done wonderful work. Look, we, we look with great admiration what you guys do over there. You're way ahead of us, to be quite honest, way ahead of us. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I think you guys are catching up quite fast, though. I mean, it's been it's been amazing on this tour of Australia to see what's going on here. And, and uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot happening here as well when well, you look into... I the think encouraged by somewhat with what you guys are doing. 
Yeah, I think probably, that, yeah. I think that's a fair, fair comment, yeah. And I think just to pick up a little point Dave made there and, and expand on it a bit, it's easy again for us to forget how important stuff like Smithy's trips were globally. I mean, it would be nowadays like having um, Chris Hadfield would be the classic example. Chris Hadfield coming to town, but in a space rocket mm. because everyone would be turning out, you know, schools would close, um, you know, the, the, the town would shut down and everyone would go to the, the field. There wouldn't be an airfield, of course, to the field, see these guys descend from the skies. And they were literally amazed that this technology was possible. Exactly as Dave said, it, it, um, it ignited you know, air-mindedness in, in New Zealand, but also in Australia and a lot of other places they went. And I'd, I'd agree with Dave, but I'd say much bigger than that. The, the Fokker um, F7 type, the Avro 10 family, uh, globally enormously important. And, and flown by royalty, I came across a photograph of one of the Indian Maharajas, had his own personal one, and I think he probably had a few more fancy fittings in the cabin than most of us would be used to. So to us, it looks very old and, and simple. And, and this is a great piece of technology you're working on with this wing, but if you're looking at a mozzie wing, like we're just saying with yeah. the guys in, at, in New Zealand have, have built up, um, it's a much more basic thing. But you've still got to work to very similar tolerances, haven't you, Jeff? Yeah, pretty pretty close. Yeah, we um, we like to work to within half a millimetre. Yeah. The whole wing was set up. It's not jigged up now so much. It's largely self-supporting now. But we had it very carefully jigged up and up until a couple of months ago, and we had it all every level. The floor survey, the whole bit, it's all everything known to within half a millimetre. Right. And that's paid off w well because when we actually release the wing from the jig, the difference in discrepancy between the angle of incidence on the good wing and the damaged wing at, at the break point was 0.1 of uh, one degree, and at this point out here it's 0.4 of a degree. Okay. Which is very happy, we're happy, very happy about that. And, and that 0.4 of a degree, we're also tweaking that out. But with the skin, with the skin yeah. not loading up too much, just just a tiny tweak. It's about that much. You can actually see the line there, Dave. That, that little discrepancy there. Oh yeah, yep, yep. Um, is, is is the tweak, and uh, when the skin's going, that'll pick that up. So the the, the uh, it should fly straight with a bit of luck. Fantastic, fantastic. Oh, yeah. And when it flies again, and that would probably be what a couple of years away. I would think so. Yeah. I, I've been saying 18 months for the last couple of years, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's because it's just like a part-time project. Yep. for a lot of us. Um, uh, yeah, things take a long while. Finances are, are, are uh, always got to be found. Yep. So it's, it's an expensive operation yep. and becoming more so as the aircraft gets closer to, to being finished. But our main concentration for the last three and a half years we've been working on this uh, is, is the wing to get it, to get it right and, and it's all shaping up pretty well actually. And you guys are volunteers? All volunteers. Haas volunteers. does not have any paid employees at all. We've got over 500 members, no, no person paid. Brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And just to, to, to go on for a bit from that, um, this would be one of your biggest wooden projects when, when you got this uh, at the expression oh, of a tender. Yeah. That would have been a big uh, change of direction for Haas, wouldn't abs it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, it's, uh, there are other, uh, only a wooden aircraft we've got is a Tiger Moth. Yeah. And there's a bit of wood in some of the other aircraft. The driver's got a bit of wood and so forth in it. And the Catalina's got some fabric work on it. It's just fabric covered metal and so forth. This has got uh, metal ailerons, uh, fabric covered. But yeah, this is this is by far the actually. It's, I think it's one of the, it's the biggest wooden wing in Australia yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, possibly worldwide. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember here how big a, a mozzie wing in, but it is, and who, whether there's a slight, you know, edge of one or the other. But at the end of the day, the point is they're both around the same sort of calibre of size. Mm -hmm. This one is designed to operate at lower loadings and so on. But uh, even so, it's a phenomenal job. How did you get involved, Jim? What's what's your background? My background is a Qantas aircraft engineer. I started with Qantas in 1955. Right. Okay. Yeah. And metal aeroplanes, uh, yep. metal aeroplanes, yeah, but Lockheed Constellations initially, and yep. uh, 
DC-4s and that sort of stuff, then go on to 707s and then 747s. I went flying as a flight engineer on 707s and then uh, subsequently on 747s. So I retired back in the early 90s and got involved with the, uh, bringing the Constellation back from America. And then uh, I came back down, when Haas moved to Albion Park here in the Illawarra, I came down here to lecture on subjects with uh, aeronautical subjects, consolation and also general aviation subjects for, for people that are new to aviation right. in our membership. And then I was asked would I take this on as a project. And I was a, as I'd been the Chief Engineer in the Connie, they thought I should be the Chief Engineer on the Southern Cross to see myself out. <laughs> <laughs> Working backwards, yeah. That's right. And that, that must have been, so you, you, you were trained on, uh, you wouldn't have trained in the 50s on wooden aircraft structures. We did would some you? at tech. We did oh, some you did, at tech. Yeah. And there were yeah. lots of people around in those days that did have a lot of yeah. work experience, but I, I didn't ever have any. But it really is a large model aeroplane, and if you can if you can read and gather information, and yep. and thank goodness to Google, Mr. Google, <laughs> it's, it's staggering the information you can draw yeah. from the old days. And now we've 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 drawn up specifications for our timbers and so forth, and had them approved, all from just stuff that we've researched. It's staggering. It must be um, quite rare too to be working on a replica that the original still exists. There wouldn't yeah. be too many replica aircraft where the where the real one you can go and still that's, look at it. That's true. Yeah, I personally haven't been up to look at it at Brisbane, uh, but some of the, our members here, that work with a couple of guys that work with me here on Fridays, they have. Yeah. And the bloke who designed this aer aeronautical engineer by the name of Bill Whitney, he's still the engineer for this. Oh, great! So he's up in Brisbane and he has access to that aircraft. Right. And uh, in drawing in drawing this up, uh, he went and looked at very closely at that and we've modified it in places where it need, needed modifying. As you pointed out, James, there were, these were very popular. They were the jumbo of the day. Yes, jumbo of the day is a good way of putting early, it. Early, over 160 of them I've built uh, worldwide. And, and this brake is very common. Uh, the original Southern Cross has had about three brakes at that point. Yep. It was broken in Alaska before Smithy got it. Yep. And it was repaired uh, in Alaska with a packing crate. <laughs> which they didn't find until he pranged it in England after flying the Pacific and then flying to England. He pranged it over wow. there, busted it there, they opened it up and found, put together a packing crate. So Fokker <laughs> took it to across the Holland and did a complete job on it. Right. It's almost and worth... That, and he broke it twice more after that. <laughs> and the thing about that is it might sound like he's a bit careless, but he was putting in phenomenal miles at an aircraft that was... Uh, um, you know, in, in an environment that's much tougher than it is today, and of course, as soon as you have a problem, this wing hits the ground pretty hard from a height. It's exactly. a high wing, high wing monoplane, so you're, you're up against it. I think it'd be hilarious if you guys put in a, a request to CASA for a, a packing crate mod and see how far <laughs> that went. <laughs> I don't think CASA would like that very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. But, but just to go and talk a moment about the old bus, because we sort of skipped over the detail of it there. Um, it is preserved at Brisbane Airport, as we were just saying. Um, it's in a big glass case outside the um, the airport, and I think it's a it's a pity that so many people go to the airport, they never see it, and they don't realise that wherever they're going, whatever they're going in, and whichever airline they're going with, this is one of the key aircraft that made that possible, proved that you could fly intercontinental um, in, in, an, in an aircraft and, and do it. There are people who believed you couldn't do it, weren't there? Absolutely. Yeah. And I hope that uh, we may see it come back to New Zealand at some stage, maybe for the 100th anniversary of the first crossing. That'd be quite good. There's a lot of, <clears throat> there's a lot of people here, Dave, that are pushing hard for that. Uh, but uh, look at 12 hours or more across, across, across the pond there. Yeah. It's a long way. It is a long but, way. Uh, I'd like to see it better down here first uh, for yeah. a while and see Absolutely, how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no reason why it, it shouldn't do it. 
It will, it will also be the only replica, airworthy replica bill. I think we can safely say it's possible someone might do another, nothing to stop them, but uh, it could well be. And, and, you know, again, I'm just thinking, remembering for a moment, these aircraft went, to the, went up um, right into the Antarctic and the Arctic and okay. bird flew one up to the North Pole. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is not a, not a, a homebody aeroplane by any no. means, is it? Mm, yeah. No, it's not. My son is probably one of the pilots that will fly this thing and... Uh, so I have a vested interest in you do. whether he's going to fly to Tasman or not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could put floats on it. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. terrific. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much. It's been oh, thank really, you. Thanks, really, for, uh, thanks for coming to look at it. It's fantastic. And yeah. uh, I'll give you some context details and we can swap notes. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Okay, thank you. We're sitting here in the uh, beautiful constellation, Lockheed Constellation at Haas, with uh, Haas President Bob Delahunty. Hi Bob. G'day guys, uh, great to have you here. Um, and uh, we've um, uh, been pretty excited having seen you fellows over in New Zealand and, uh, and shared the, the, the great moment of the mosquito flying. And uh, so it's great to have you here at Haas to see what we do this side of the, the pond. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we remember you coming over for one of the forum meets, didn't you, so, yeah. as well? So, yeah. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the background of Haas and uh, how it all came about? Yeah, well, we're a, a individual uh, group of people that got together uh, wanting to save uh, diminishing aviation heritage. And Australia had the fifth Air Force in the world back during the war and huge manufacturing capability and uh, no one wanted to know the war after it was over and everything got uh, scaled down, uh, lots of stuff was uh, then scrapped and very little was kept so uh, over many years a lot of people have been pretty upset about the, the fact that all of that history was just fading away and future generations would have no idea so uh, uh, individual people were collecting pieces from uh, crash sites from farmer sheds from bits that have been left over and about 1978 uh, a few of the guys decided let's why don't we pool our resources and and uh, so they started to meet about once every three months at someone's home and and talk about what could have been and show pictures of stuff that they might have or had been given to them and uh, out of that it just sort of went along in that vein and then um, we did try and build a, a facility out at uh, an airfield west of Sydney that had been a World War II uh, facility uh, and uh, we got as far as putting a cement pad down on that site before the government decided to sell it off to houses. Oh. So uh, we then moved everything into uh, a Vietnam veteran uh, facility out at, um, again in western Sydney and, uh, and again it was a, a growing uh, site and then we decided that it's time to do something more practical and uh, it it's, um, uh, needs to, to have some flying uh, assets. So a New Zealand Harvard was in fact acquired and right. uh, it was the first aircraft that was flying within this group of, of individuals right. and, uh, uh, and that uh, started the, the, the flying ambitions I guess going forward. 
Which, ha- which Harvard was that? Just it's uh, HAR is the registration uh, of that aircraft, historical aircraft restoration. Yep, so do you, do you remember the RNZF zero number? All, all the spots. No, I don't. No, it's, it's still flying here with yep. uh, one of our former members. Uh, so it is uh, around the place still. Right, right. Yeah, but about parallel to all that. Um, I'd been doing charter flying around the place for, for a number of years and uh, uh, I'd been um, keen about Neptune bombers from school days when I was in the Air Force cadets and uh, uh, and there was uh, some uh, Neptune engines for sale in the in a paper on one occasion down in, in Sydney and um, my secretary's husband and I, uh, Gordon Glynn, we uh, ended up buying them we, and we had these eight Neptune engines in cans. We had them stored outside his factory in Castle Hill. We called them dinosaur eggs. Well, other people said they were dinosaur <laughs> eggs. It's great big cans. What the hell are we going to do with these? And we decided that we'd um, have one each, uh, set it up in our garages with um, uh, tables around, and uh, we'd get on the, the, the grog and talk about what could have been again <laughs> and uh, sell the others to recover our initial investments to like-minded people. And about that time, I had been with Colonial Mutual, an insurance company, and uh, we had a conference in Tahiti. And uh, uh, on this conference, I saw a Neptune bomber uh, partly burnt in a fire dump and another couple that had been burnt. And then one sitting next to the fire station and found that the Neptunes actually had been taken out of service. And uh, my wife's got a photograph of me standing with my hand against it saying, they're not going to burn this one because it looked, <laughs> looked too good. And uh, that started uh, two years of negotiating with the French and then the Americans who had it on long-term assistance. And in the meantime, I was doing a charter flight through North Queensland, knowing that if we got this Neptune in Tahiti, need to l- learn how to fly one. So there was one that had been saved, that had been sold to the Scrappies for $50 in Townsville, flown a little bit, but was pretty well um, not going to fly anymore. There wasn't enough resources. And I visited the owner on a charter flight through Townsville on one occasion, had a look through it, and uh, uh, gave him a, a, a right of first refusal offer. And uh, from there, uh, I came back and saw Gordon and said, um, uh, there's a Neptune up there and the one in Tahiti. He said, well, why don't we buy it? And I said, well, have you got any money? And I said, I haven't, and he didn't. So we went to our... our um, banks and we borrowed twelve and a half thousand dollars each on our credit cards and uh, made this offer to uh, the guy who owned it and on April Fool's Day 1988 went up and uh, gave him the money and said well can you teach us to fly it and maintain it so for the next two weeks we uh, we learned how to maintain it and uh, I did a type rating and, uh, and so did Gordon and uh, uh, the way we did the type rating was work on the aeroplane all day the next morning we might get a short flight in and then we had to pay another $25,000 in fuel. Our wives are really <laughs> pleased with us at this stage. And most of our study on the engineering and stuff was um, around the bar in the Royal Queen, North Queensland Aero Club trying to recite all the checklists verbatim, <laughs> having had a few drinks to uh, distract us somewhat. But anyway, uh, the upshot was we flew the aircraft uh, out of Townsville down to Tamworth, New South Wales, and, uh, and thought that... Um, uh, that would be about all we would be doing and flying that Neptune around the place and had given up on the one in Tahiti after two years of writing letters backwards and forwards and uh, and uh, we took this uh, Neptune we'd got to the Bicentenary Air Show in 1988 
And just after that we got a call from a guy who was ferrying a Neptune to be a fire bomber in Western Australia, stuck out at Madra on the Marshall Islands. Could we come and save him? So we ended up going via Hawaii and in November 1988 uh, fixing this Neptune on this little desolate island out in the middle of the Pacific somewhere and I flew it to Perth. And uh, shortly after that got a letter from the Americans saying um, all your negotiations for the one in Tahiti had come to fruition. Yep. Come and get your aeroplane. So in February '89, uh, I got a, our crew that we'd put together with the Neptunes, got sponsorship from UTA French Airlines, and uh, went off to Tahiti. And uh, and we spent backwards and forwards to Tahiti about six times and uh, fixed it and flew it back to Australia on Bastille Day 1989. So we ended <laughs> up with these two Neptunes, and um, uh, and then. Uh, uh, we needed to get some spare parts for them. So the next phase of all of this was that um, Colonial Mutual had another conference overseas, and uh, that was that one was in Vancouver. And uh, my wife and I went off to that and arranged for Gordon and Gail after the conference to meet us in Las Vegas. Uh, we didn't want to go to Las Vegas; the girls did. Yep. <laughs> and after they had a look around Las Vegas, they agreed we'd uh, continue on down to Tucson, Arizona, where the uh, graveyards are and we yep. would get some Neptune spears down in the graveyards. We knew that they were breaking them up down there. Yep. So we drove all night and got down to uh, Tucson about 3 o'clock in the morning and we didn't want to go and find a motel despite our wives screaming at us <laughs> and uh, we were seen hanging on the wire fence looking through the Davis Montham yards, rows and rows of aeroplanes. We did go and check the women in. Uh, when the sun came up uh, we, uh, we went to the boneyards and uh, we were busy negotiating Neptune spares and there's this uh, Lockheed Super Constellation sitting derelict in one of the yards there right. and uh, so I was there looking at it and Gordon drives his elbow into my ribs and says uh, don't even think about it. <laughs> I said well no, it's only a Neptune with an extra couple of R3350s. Anyway that's, that began, uh, began a, a, a bit of a, an interest in that. Came back to Australia, um, was invited to talk to the Powerhouse Museum Historical Aviation Society meeting on one occasion. There was a Sydney Morning Herald reporter in the audience and uh, at the end of talking about Neptunes and how we'd recover these two Neptunes, he said, is there any other projects in mind? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know whether I should say this, but sitting in the yard when we're getting spare parts with this Lockheed Super Constellation, uh, big project, but, you know, forget it. Yep. And we left it at that. That was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald. The next week I got a call from a fellow saying uh, he'd seen the report yep. and if we we're going to get a Connie project going, he'd like to put some money into it. Wow. So I thought, oh no. <laughs> anyway, about a week later he rang and I thought he was just a nutcase, like the rest of us probably, <laughs> and he said he'd been to his bank to borrow money for his uh, kid's swimming pool and he got approval from his wife to borrow another $5,000 to put in a super constellation project. And we were working on one of the Neptunes at the time. He came out, had this check on a clipboard. He was all dressed up in a suit, looked very formal. I was up on the wing of the aeroplane, came down and saw him, gave me this envelope. There's this check for 5000 I said, well, if there's more idiots like you and I, maybe we could do something here. And I went and saw my friend, Father Jeremy Flynn, which you'll see is this hangar's named after, okay. and a vampire project you see over there in the Cessna 310 all part of Father Jeremy's uh, aviation interest. He said, uh, as long as you include me in training for the crew, I'll give you uh, some support. So he gave me 10000 on the spot. So we had 15000 Another long story, we could be here a week telling you about it, but one thing 
led to another and we were entertaining the uh, general in charge of the US Air Force Museum in Australia was out here visiting right. and we're talking about this Connie project and he said I think I've got a, a couple of Connies on my inventory I'll have a look when I get back and uh, because the one in the yard we saw was a warning star version not a passenger type one and uh, I could see to make it attractive for sponsorship we're going to have to make it look like an airliner there was no historic significance of having a a military warning star Connie here so we'd have to modify it and take a bit to do and um, so there was sort of a bit of a stumbling block anyway uh, when uh, General Medcalf got back he sent uh, a note to say yes he did have a Connie still in the Davis Montham Boneyard. Now we'd seen, you know, there's 8,000 aeroplanes and we hadn't seen uh, another aircraft uh, but it, as it turned out it was only about less than a half a mile from where this particular one is in, in the wrecking yard. It was sitting over in the in the boneyard lined with fighters all next to it that had been put with radio equipment to be shot down. Yep. So we um, uh, said we'd like to have a look at it. So he organised an inspection. So uh, Gordon and I and uh, Kim Slattery, one of the other fellows and a Navy engineer, we, we went over, we got approval, took a lot of doing because at the time the strategic um, limitation stuff was in full swing with the Russians. They were breaking up aircraft over there and they were destroying 50 B-52 bombers a month in Tucson with a big guillotine bang, yep. chopping them up. Turned out that there were 32 of this particular model, Connie, which is very similar to what Qantas operated, and all the other ones, except one, had been scrapped. Wow. And the only reason why this one hadn't been is someone had left a cockpit window open and a hatch, and for 17 years, pigeons had moved in. <laughs> and the whole thing was just absolutely a total pigeon coop. Smell, yeah. full of pigeons. Where you're standing there now was about two feet of pigeon guano. Oh, all the instruments that had been removed had pigeons nesting in the holes, <laughs> down underneath here, pigeons everywhere, all down through it, hat racks, the whole thing was a total shambles. Anyway, it was the only Connie we could get hold of, and it sat there with one engine, one propeller off, no rudders on, cocooned, and uh, we said we'd, we'd take it. But the US Air Force can't give anything away, so we had to find a way. and. Some of our Haas members had been up to Columbaroo, northwestern Western Australia, and they had uh, recovered a couple of Bowfighter airframes that had been left derelict after World War II. They were Mark Ones, which were the similar ones to the United States people had operated in the Middle East, yep. and they didn't have one in Davis, in Dayton, Ohio. So we negotiated, and uh, Americans agreed to exchange this aircraft for one of the bow fighters so and we had to put the bow fighter together so for years at mascot we worked on putting the bow fighter together while we had a team over working on this aircraft i managed to get Qantas um, deputy director uh, support for travel for people for many years and uh, so we had teams going backwards and forwards we dragged the aircraft out of the boneyard took it across to the pima air museum negotiated with the general in charge of the pima air museum that would be there for six weeks and uh, four years later, he used to walk past and he'd say, oh, your six weeks is almost up. <laughs> and, uh, but they were very helpful and very cooperative and still are because we have a convoy project over there at the moment. And uh, so one thing led to another from there. We worked on the aircraft and in September 94, um, took it for a, a short flight out of uh, uh, davis Montham across to Tucson International. And uh, another long story, but uh, ran into the deputy uh, director of um, the Lockheed uh, Aeromod Centre mm -hmm. and 
at three o'clock in the morning after I'd plied him with $120 worth of Bailey's Irish Cream. He said, if you let me go to bed, I'll paint your aeroplane. <laughs> so we got a paint job over in, in America and then we had to do an engine change. We had a bit of metal in one engine that we, well, there were metal in all the engines because they used to, uh, Americans, when they take aircraft in the boneyard, they'd uh, almost race each other in there, I think. Right. Anyway, there was a little bit more metal in one than the other, so we changed an engine for one of the engines off of one of the Connies in the Premier Air Museum and uh, arrived here in Australia on the 3rd of February 1996. Right. And after 42 hours of uh, from, uh, uh, from Tucson up to Oakland on San Francisco Bay, and then across to uh, Honolulu, then to Pago Pago, to Fiji, and then to Sydney. And uh, so I guess that's a uh, very quick uh, wrap-up of um, many years of Connie history. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So this is, a, this is a super Connie rather than a straight Connie. Can you explain the differences to people like me who are not familiar with that kind of okay. detail? Yeah. Well, the designation of the uh, uh, Connies went through 069 right up to 749, and and then to 1049 and into 1649. The 749 was a model that Qantas had, which was uh, uh, a little shorter, yeah. and it didn't have the big engines that we have on this aircraft. Right. So when, in, when they brought out the Super Connie, they stretched the fuselage, the same wing is, was there, and they put a, a stretch uh, behind the, the wing and in front of the wing, and, uh, and put these uh, R3350 uh, engines with the power recovery turbines on them as well, and, uh, and hence the Super Constellation. And uh, Qantas then had bought uh, a number of Super Constellations, and they started the Round the World Airline with Super Constellations uh, and ran them up until 63, uh, but they started the jets coming in in 58. So uh, that's primarily the difference. And, uh, uh, but the wing is the same, and the wing is actually a grossed-up P-38 Lightning wing. I was just going to wing. ask you that. I'd heard that, yeah. and I wanted if I wondered yeah. if that was you. So the yeah. P-38 Lightning wing, which yeah. is a very distinctive, very elegant shape, rather like you know, it's elegant in a different way to the Spitfire wing. But yeah. people see it and they go, yeah, lovely Lockheed stuff there. Yeah. And um, yeah, and this wing is exactly even the washout and the wing. You'll see, and if, if uh, Peter shows you in the restoration shop, we're doing a P-38 Lightning project yeah. in there, yeah. um, and uh, and that's uh, and even the rib structures and how the wings constructed um, is. Uh, you know, again, a grossed-up uh, situation. The 1649 was the same fuselage, but a, a bigger wing. This is a 123 feet 10-inch wing, yep. and the Starline is a 140 two feet wing, and the engines are spaced out a little bit further. Yep. And uh, the uh, Lufthansa Technic Group are restoring one of those in Maine, and uh, it's been a huge project. They've really, they've totally rebuilt the aircraft, stripped it totally down redone wing planks, built the rebuilt wings and engines overhauled. They've spent so far I think a hundred million euros to uh, bring this air, aircraft back into the skies and um, that's out of their foundation. They've got uh, apprentices and trainee people 70, um, uh, uh, 24-7 working on it right. and we've been training some of their crews here in Australia. Oh, They've been um, sending out um, uh, some of the captains and stuff, and we've been giving them uh, continuation support. So when they get to fly, um, they uh, they will be uh, feeling pretty comfortable with it. We'd like to go over and do the test flying for them, but 
uh, everyone in aviation's got an ego and they want to do their own anyway. But well, that's, yes, that's yes. how that'll be. We appreciate that. It, it's easy to find. It's easy to find uh, pilots for aircraft. It's people to do the work that's the hard thing. And and so was it. I mean, had you flown anything like a Connie when you first got your hands on this? Uh, well, I had been flying the Neptune bombers, right, of course, and yeah. uh, which are the same engines and the systems are the same, and so there's a lot of the Neptune's actually more complex to fly than this because you have a flight engineer working with you and a second flight engineer supporting, and so very little to do sitting here. You just point the aircraft and you call down to the engine room what power settings you want and. Uh, uh, and just make sure you don't fly into a hill. And uh, the checklists are done by the co-pilot and, and we have a, usually a, a second officer too just overseeing, looking out the windows, etc. So it's very relaxed aeroplane to fly, very smooth, very powerful, very quiet. You can, you can have a conversation like this up yep. here in the cockpit. Wow. The Neptune, on the other hand, has got two jet engines and two recips like these yep. and only two pilots. So you've got to handle all of that in the cockpit. So... It's a more complex uh, aircraft, so the Connie's delightful to fly. Um, and before that, I'd been flying turboprop Cheyenne 680 FL Grand Commanders, which had a geared supercharged engine, so a bit of experience. But I did fly the 749 right. um, before flying this aircraft, the uh, what the, everyone knows as the Mats Connie. Yep. I got to fly that. Okay. And, yep. uh, and that was a, a great experience to, um, to fly that around the place. And... Uh, made me realise how um, simple this would be to fly and I did the second test flight in this aircraft right. having spent years working on it, knew all the systems and um, and it was uh, exactly as I'd uh, dreamt and, yeah. uh, and no no uh, vices and no particular problems. When, uh, when I was completing my training, fortunately we had uh, an 80 year old fellow, Frank, Frank Buterak his name was, he was a test pilot for Lockheed for many years on Connie's both military and civil and I remember one stage of just flying up and down over the Arizona deserts and I had Father Jeremy Flynn in the right hand seat and uh, one of the American flight engineers on the panel and Father Jeremy wanted to go to the toilet so he he went down to the toilet and I thought he'd be back very shortly and uh, said to him send someone else up to have a fly while you're down there anyway a little while later he hadn't come back and uh, Frank Buterak who'd been talking down there saw I was up here just flying around myself. He came up and he said, he said, oh, you're doing a Howard Hughes, are you, <laughs> Bob? And I said, uh, uh, well, no, I hadn't hoped to do, I hadn't planned to do that. Howard Hughes got probably, probably frustrated when he was demonstrating Connie's, which he was very much part of the operation, um, to Washington, D.C., and, and they uh, prepared the aircraft at uh, Burbank to, to go there. And his crew were mucking around, so he shut the doors and he ran over there and he started the engines himself and he took off and he flew non-stop from Burbank to um, Washington, D.C. in seven hours uh, on his own. Wow. And a uh, very famous exercise. Uh, you, you can actually do it. As long as you start the engines, we do have enough here to do it. And, yeah, yeah. and there's a master lever here and the ignition switches are up here. So um, he, uh, he had that reputation. Anyway, Frank said, oh, and I said, no, not really. And he said, the, the boost out system. Um, you guys have been saying that they're all dreading the idea of, of having to do the boost out uh, side of it. And the boost out is that you've got powered hydraulic controls yep. on the elevators, ailerons and rudder. And there's a big lever here which is which does your elevator and there's two here to do your rudders and ailerons. And um, uh, in Qantas days, they used to take crews out to Narromine and, uh, and they would do the dreaded boost out, which you um, would have no hydraulics and... When you have no hydraulics, the control column is rock solid like you feel now, yeah. and uh, to uh, 
to do it you need, uh, they used to say that you need your co-pilot, feet up on the panel trying to help you and everything else. And uh, anyway, Frank um, said, I've heard all this. He said, in 20 years, he said, I never, ever had an occasion or never heard of where an actual boost out was required. The redundancy systems in this aircraft are, are pretty good because if you do have a hydraulic fail, you can switch over to an emergency system and then you can s switch over to a, another bypass emergency system and just throw a couple of switches up here and that gives you elevator boost control. Right. So anyway, he said, I'll demonstrate it to you anyway. So he stood behind me and he talked me through. He said, okay, we'll pull that lever first and this lever first. Now you'll feel how you can't move anything. It's rock solid. And I said, yeah, that's right. But if you lean on it for a while, it'll start to respond. And, right. But the easiest way is trim wheels. So I did flew all over the desert with a boost out with just using trim wheels and then failing an outboard engine, shutting it down and feathering it and zero timing, flying with two engines on one side, hydraulics off, just winding around. So when I train guys on the aircraft, I demonstrate all of that to them, how simply the aircraft is and it can fly on two engines. There is a footage of your, um, one of the famous American World War II pilots who went on to be the chief pilot of Eastern Airlines. He was did a thing which you can see on YouTube um, uh, showing the capabilities of Connie and uh, he uh, he says to the, uh, the media crew on board now uh, Connie's fantastic airplane just watch this I'll shut down one two and three and fly on, uh, on number four one only and uh, which he does and, and the airplane will fly on, on uh, one quite simply yep. and um, uh, very effectively. Um, you wouldn't want to take off like that, um, no. <laughs> but it um, it can uh, can fly quite safely on uh, on one in cruise, and you do the set and landing all right. But um, you wouldn't want to do a go around. But you can do it on two. Uh, ideally, you wouldn't have to. But uh, and in the 20 years of flying it, I've only had to shut down uh, one engine twice. Precaution only. Yeah. Um, there's an oil leak out of number four and uh, shut that down as a precaution. Another time there was a propeller leak out of number three. Um, and uh, the airplane's pretty reliable. And, and we haven't had an engine failure. Um, we've had a few little minor things, like a similar change, which we've got ongoing out there. Um, but uh, the, our engineers are really uh, fantastic. They're all um, dedicated with a great passion. And uh, uh, you look at the window as you're flying, pinch yourself that all these engines are just following you nicely. Yeah. Did that across from America, sitting up there between, particularly about halfway between uh, Honolulu and San Francisco on the way out and about midway, uh, 11 o'clock at night, going through little thunderstorms, everyone was asleep down the back, the navigator never went to sleep, he was really good, he just sat there and giving you uh, all yep. the, your updated stuff, flight engineer sitting there quietly, guy on the right hand seat just, um, uh, and uh, sitting there thinking, all these engines have been sitting in the desert for all this time beside the fail, and it's probably the same thing, and they'll all fail and we'll be in the drink. And you sort of picture all that, and then you picture all the cylinders, yeah. all the pistons going up and down, all the bit battle going round and round. <laughs> oh, don't want to think about that. No, no, absolutely. So that was about halfway, and then, then after that you think, well, we've left America. Even if we arrive with an engine shut down, we're out of America. We've you know, five years in the desert stumbling around. We've uh, at least got this far. But uh, the aeroplane flew fine. We arrived in Fiji early, which would, and Qantas didn't want us into Sydney until midday on a Saturday, and we were you know, two days early by this stage because everyone thought there'd be problems, yeah, and yeah. so we better allow for that. No, no problem. So, with those two days, 
most of the guys were going to the beach or the pub or whatever and a couple of the engineers they were going round and listening to everything and one of the engineers thought he could hear a bit of a wheeze in um, I think it was uh, number two engine and uh, thought it uh, you know, it'd be better off if we changed that how about we change it we've got two days and so had a wonderful time uh, in Fiji changing one cylinder because there was always this dreaded story about Connie was the best three engine airliner in Qantas service and uh, and they didn't want to arrive with, with three engines they wanted to arrive with four just in case there was an issue there wasn't any issue but they changed it anyway so we arrived with four and uh, ever since then we've uh, uh, because of the engine handling and our engineers, etc., um, that we've been drilling into everybody we train, uh, we've not had a touchwood, a, a serious engine problem, and uh, for over 20 years, well, that's uh, stunned them. Well, that's great. <laughs> that is and, absolutely terrific. Yeah, and just yeah. to, just to pick up that you, you know you've operated a Connie for 20 years, which is longer than Qantas operated double double what yeah. Qantas operated them in airline service for, yeah. and uh, um, your oil bill is huge. I don't even want to think about your fuel bill. Your oil <laughs> bill must be huge. So um, obviously uh, you you work very. I mean, there's as what you've just said, it's really easy to fly, but then you've got to maintain it, pay for maintaining it. That's a big big ask. How do you do that? Well, the air shows around the place uh, yeah. uh, like us to come. Shell Aviation have been very, very generous and yeah. supportive for the whole period that we've had the aircraft. Um, and uh, you know, there's some years you'll find 50, 44 gallon drums sitting out there. Most of them have come through this aircraft. We don't change the order, it burns through. Yeah. And uh, engines are quite capable of burning four gallons per hour per engine. Um, and uh, ours are burning a little bit less than that. And in quite a service, they got up to six gallons per hour per engine in, in many respects, which became a, uh, uh, a range-limiting factor rather than fuel. Mm, and yeah. uh, so it was rather limited by oil burn range. And there's four 47-gallon US oil tanks at the back of each engine and a 67-gallon oil tank in the centre section. And, right. and that, as your oil comes down on the gauge, you can transfer oil out of the centre one either hydraulically or electrically and right. there's heated lines so it doesn't co congeal uh, pumping the oil out to the engines but we didn't have to do very much of that um, in the whole uh, flight uh, arrangement but um, yeah we're, um, we're pretty good as you can see we've got two of these big oil dollies there and they hold about 444 gallons each and we, yep. we've got two of those that we drive up and fill her up right. uh, oil. Yep. Amazing <laughs> the, stuff. Yeah. The, fuel, um, the fuel burn um, if you're doing circuits, it's very, very heavy. Um, in cruise, it gets down to, to uh, 2,200 litres an hour. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and we uh, lump along at about 215 knots, burning uh, around 2,200 litres an hour, and uh, uh, with an RPM of 2,100 and a manifold pressure of about 32 inches. But Qantas often run them at 260 knots and uh, they would be burning a lot more fuel and oil mm. and and giving a giving them a workout. You're looking a lot you're looking a lot longer term than Qantas was they were aiming to get there mm. a, a bit quicker. Uh, we're running a bit short of time but one thing I'd right. love to say is um, before before you sort of get towards the end there um, one of the great things you do with this Connie is, is the night show and uh, the Avalon air show um, we've regularly flown it at dusk with mm. uh, the blue flames from the engine and the lights and everything. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a well it's an unusual thing to say but it's a magical experience and it must be fun from the cockpit too. 
Oh, it is. We turn all the external lights out and people think we're doing something special, but we're not. The engines are doing that all the time, but at night time it's like a Bunsen burner or a gas, mm -hmm. and, and there they are. And uh, so it um, uh, lights up everything uh, across the whole aircraft at night time. And uh, yeah, at night time when we go somewhere, the, the flames are seeing there. Same with the Neptune, you can yeah, see those, yeah. those flames. Uh, and when you go into auto lean, the flames get longer and oh, in right. cruise, and sometimes they're six feet long. They're just wow. licking out beautiful blue flame <laughs> coming out of a big power recovery turbine flight hood yeah. going back, and uh, and you know it's uh, mesmerizing. And yeah. in Qantas days, the stewardesses used to close the windows opposite the engines to, because people would think they're on fire. Yep, yep. And the power recovery turbine flight hoods, the metal inconol um, heats up to about 1200 degrees and you can actually, it be, they become transparent so you can see wow. see almost like glass, you can see uh, right into, that. into yeah. them wow. and uh, and so people then would say oh that's too pretty to, <laughs> so they'd open the window to have a look. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a really a, a fun aircraft to, um, to fly. Well, Those night shows at Avalon because we don't do them that often, I use the 747 simulator to um, to do the practice and you just dial up Avalon and yep. roar around at night time low level and it's pretty spectacular doing uh, yes. 500 circuits at night in a Connie with flames coming out of the exhaust <laughs> and, and uh, we enjoy doing that. I'm and, sure you do. I, we'd yeah. love to stay and, and talk Connie and, and Haas for all day mm. but unfortunately we do have to mosey on. Really appreciate your time there Bob, yeah. that was really yeah. good. And, you, and you've got a, got a lot more aircraft here to, for people to come and see and uh, yeah. if, if, if people want to know more where, where can they yeah. find you? Yeah. Well there's 40 aircraft here and we have a Facebook page and also a website and we're open seven days a week between 9.30 and 3.30. We take tours on the 747, we take tours through the Connie, uh, people can sit in the, one of the Neptunes and and, uh, and in the cockpit and kids can do all that. We have an F-111 fighter bomber. They can sit in the F-111. They can go through uh, uh, C-54 DC-4 under restoration, see our Southern Cross replica, our Catalina flying boat, two caribous, and uh, our uh, two uh, World War II DAX. One's green, yep. as it was with the other one when they arrived in May 1945, and the other one's in the colour when the Air Force finished with them in 2000. So... Lots to see here with 40 aircraft. And uh, our yes. tour guides love showing everybody. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Bob. Thank it's you, Bob. It's been really fascinating. Good. Cheers. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>